When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. This Intelligence Squared podcast is supported by Audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, non-fiction and periodicals. The Intelligence Squared audience now has the chance to try Audible's service by downloading an audiobook for free. One title you may wish to consider is The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker, in which he illustrates how, contrary to popular belief, humankind has become progressively less violent over millennia and decades. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash debate. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash debate. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Thank you very much all for coming uh, to, to, our, to our first debate in, in the series. Uh, you will know that the title of the debate is The World Needs Religion, Even If It Doesn't Need God. Let's kick off with um, our first speaker, Alain de Botton. Please welcome him. He's a writer and philosopher. Alain, would you like to take to the podium? (laughs) Writer, philosopher, and founder of the School of Life. Alain, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to propose something rather unusual, that we can raid religion as non-believers for the best bits of it. That's extremely impious if you happen to believe. The idea that religion is a buffet from which you can take the choicest cuts is deeply offensive to believers. But I want to argue that there should be nothing offensive about that approach if you're a non-believer. Imagine if, essentially, religions are treated as cultural works. Why not pick the best bits? Imagine you liked the essays of Virginia Woolf, and somebody came along and said, you can't just like the essays. You have to like the whole thing. You have to sign on the dotted line and commit your life to Virginia Woolf. This would seem absurd. In culture, we can pick and mix. We can like a bit of the essays of this person, the plays of that person, the early novels of the third, and that's allowed. And I want to suggest that we can do something similar with religion as non-believers because there are plenty of really good ideas within religion. And what I want to do now is just take you through one or two of the ideas that I think are the most tempting, most interesting within religion that appeal to me a complete non-believer. One of the ideas that I love... Religions start off from the idea that all of us are close to breakdown. We are fragile, we are nervous, we are vulnerable creatures. And so what we need above all is guidance. We need what gets called pejoratively in the modern world self-help. If you're a modern, intelligent, secular person and you say, I'm having a bit of a crisis and I've been reading some self-help books, people will think that you're an idiot. Um, they, you know, the assumption is that once you've reached uh, adult maturity, you are not in need of counsel so often. Even if you say, I'm in psychotherapy, people will say, oh dear, what, 
you know, in what way are you crazy? Um, so the assumption is that fragility is, can be equated with, with a kind of madness. All religions, all major religions, rather touchingly, refer to their adherents as children. They see us, as modern psychoanalysis sees us, as essentially childlike inside, constantly prey to the same vulnerabilities as children, and hence in need of guidance. That's a very useful insight. And the starting point for the pedagogic efforts of religions, what religions want to do is to guide us towards goodness. Now, I don't necessarily agree with the vision of goodness that religions propose, but I love the idea of the attempt at education in the realm of the personal life. That's, in a sense, what I've dedicated my own life to, inspired by religion. So the content I don't necessarily agree with, but the form is fascinating. I also love the way that religions go about teaching us. One of the things that religions are really aware of is we're incredibly forgetful. You know, the secular world, the godless world, thinks if you put somebody in a classroom or a university and you pour in some knowledge, it'll stay there for the next 40 years throughout a career in management consultancy. You don't need to top it up. Religions are obsessed with the fact that our minds are like sieves. So if you tell somebody something at 9 a.m., they'll have forgotten it by lunchtime and they'll need a repetition and then another one at dinner time. All the major religions are essentially constantly trying to repeat things and the secular world forgets this. We always want the new rather than circling, as religions do, around the traditional. The other thing religions do wonderfully is arrange time. They create calendars, chronologies, so that we will regularly come into contact with some of the most important ideas. We believe in diaries in the secular world, but they're for scheduling things like tax returns, whereas what religions do is encounter spiritual uh, 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 meetings. So, you know, on the 31st of March, you will meet St. Jerome, and you will be reminded of kindness and gentleness and lots of other things. So I love the idea of structure as it applies to the internal life, and that's something that religions do uh, wonderfully. The other thing that religions do, of course, perfectly is rituals. Now, what is a ritual? A ritual is an elevation of what in the secular world might be a merely private moment to a communal moment that has some rules and has a fixed place within a community. In other words, we don't forget it. We don't forget to do it. Take the moon. You know, the, um, it, we always look at the moon. Some of us look at the moon and we think, oh, isn't it lovely looking at the moon? It puts things in perspective. It, you know, adds a feeling of grandeur, etc. But we don't look at the moon enough. Now, if you're a Zen Buddhist, every September... That impulse, which in the secular world is rather vulnerable, gets raised into a ritual, the ritual of Tsukimi. You'll go out, you'll stand on a canonical platform, and you will reflect on the moon in a ritualized way. So that that meeting is in your diary. Something wonderful, I think, about that. The other thing that religions do really well is to remember that oratory is incredibly important when you're trying to teach someone something. I'm making a bit of a hash of it, but if you go to a Pentecostalist church, say in the Southern American uh, states, um, you will see religious oratory at its peak. There's a constant uh, call and response. The preacher says something, the audience says, amen, 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 you know, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Savior, thank you, Christ, you know, that kind of thing. I think that uh, secular people should imbibe some of this, should copy it. You know, imagine if at university, rather than sort of sitting there with your arms folded, if the preacher or the lecturer were fired up with some of the energies of Pentecostalism, you'd go, you know, thank you, Jane Austen, thank you, Montaigne, thank you, Shakespeare, and you'd rouse up and you'd go, amen, amen, and, you know, that way the knowledge would stick. But no, we just stand there very politely. Um, Religions are interested in sermons, um, and the secular world's interested in lectures. What's the difference between a lecture and a sermon? Well, a sermon wants to change your life, whereas a lecture, well, just wants to impart a little bit of information. So again, we like that. The other thing religions remember is you're dealing with, with people who are not just uh, uh, minds, they're also bodies. In other words, religions are constantly trying to touch us through mind and body. So wonderful rituals in Zen Buddhism, the Zen Buddhist tea ceremony. Now, you know, Zen Buddhism is always talking about the impermanence of life and um, you know, the brevity of existence, etc. But it doesn't just do this through lectures. It gives us a cup of tea in a certain room, you sit in a certain way, and a philosophical lesson is bolstered by a physical action. And you get this in all religions, and it's tremendously uh, insightful uh, in terms of the way we work. The other thing religions do really well is use art. Um, uh, you know, sometimes people think, you know, what about humanism, etc.? The thing about humanism is the art is so bad. Um, you know, if you've ever been to a humanist wedding, it just looks terrible. The great thing about religions is they had the phone numbers of the best artists. You know, where did the Catholic Church go? Titian, you know, Mantegna. They got the real guys. So, and the, because, the reason they did this is because they knew that you, in order to get to somebody, you need to touch them through the senses. They were also quite clear that art isn't just for art's sake or some mysterious nebulous 
nebulous thing. The purpose of art is quite simple. It's to keep you on the right track. It's to remind you of what's good and healthy and wise, and it's to frighten you from what's bad. That's a beautifully simple mission that I think all artists can respond to whatever the quality, whatever their, their type of work, uh, even uh, in, in the modern age. In a way, art was a form of propaganda. Titian was a propagandist, and that's normally frightening when it's Stalinist art, but when it's the art of Titian, we excuse it because it's propaganda in the name of goodness. Again, something to be uh, uh, inspired by. The other thing religions are really good at doing is cementing community. Now, all of us are normally quite bad at community. We sit there unless there's a good host in the room. Now, if there's a good host in the room, that host will say, look, everybody everybody introduce yourselves and suddenly everybody starts talking. I bet none of you have really talked to anyone you didn't know here. But if I, I'm, not, I'm not going to waste up my valuable time doing this, but if I said to you now, just talk to your neighbours right now, talk to a stranger, don't do it, but if, you, if I said that to you, suddenly the conversation would flow and the sociability that's within all of you would have a chance to rise and express itself. All of us are far more social than the modern secular world allows us to be, but we're scared. We need a host. Now, religion is that host. Religion essentially brings us together in spaces and says, in this building, you can actually talk to someone without being thought a lunatic. And that's a very nice thing to do because so often our sociable impulses are are, are stifled. The other thing religions do is realize that we need to change, we want to change, and they give us a mechanism for that called pilgrimage. Um, they, They send us on journeys and they use travel as a mechanism for an inner evolution as much as it is about traveling Uh, through space. And again, think how shallow modern journeying is without the example of religion. So what I'm trying to do, rifling through this buffet in the nine minutes that have been allotted to me, um, what I'm really trying to do is to draw your attention to the way that religions, without God, without belief, are full of very valuable ideas that can be of use in all sorts of areas in uh, secular life. Now, the religious will say, but without God, you know, Uh, Canterbury Cathedral is nothing, or, you know, the the music of Bach is nothing without God. And the the unfortunate truth is, well, it's still pretty impressive. You know, I mean, I don't believe, but I find Bach's cantatas still pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, Ely Cathedral does do it for me. So I I can't speak for what the full effect of, of these secondary organizational aspects of religion might be. But what I, if, if I did believe, but as a non-believer, I can tell you that, yes, these things do affect me and they do work. They may not have the full power, perhaps, but they have quite a lot of power. That pleasant chiming tells me that my time is up. Anyway, um, so really to conclude, religions are on the whole far too intelligent, wise, complex and sophisticated to be abandoned only to those who happen to believe in them. Thank you very much. Alain, Alain, thank you very much, but please stay there because at this point the opponents of the motion have a chance to grill you for a couple of minutes on what you've just what they've just heard and is this working yes no i i what i want to ask you alan is um what do you make of the person of jesus it was c.s lewis who pointed out that what you cannot do is call him a good man he was either mad he thought he was god or he was bad, he was lying, he was wicked, or he was who he said he was. So who do you think he was? Well, I'm going to disagree with C.S. Lewis. I do think he was wise. I think he was slightly nutty. I mean, if one was a psychoanalyst, one would call him probably a borderline personality. He, was, he, definitely, had issues with mad, his, he definitely had issues with his parents. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, but look, I think overall he had some wise things. Uh, to tell us the thing got out of hand. Um, you know, it was all a bit hot-headed. Um, so... Look, I'm being very, very impious, and I don't really want to be because the other thing about... No, I'm not asking you... I don't mind you being impious. I just want you to be logical. Yes. So, being logical, I think, as I say, he's a borderline personality, issues particularly with his father, and, uh, but, you know, some some intelligent things to say on a lot of things. Yeah. Can I just ask your experience of what you call the religious hosts who cause conversation? As a man who attends quite a lot of religious ceremonies, or I have done in the past, the flow of conversation in most of the churches I've gone to has been absolutely appalling, if existent at all. And I have found that the secularity of wine and uh, sexual attraction is far more powerful in... Causing conversation. I mean, is your experience different from mine? Um, look, here again, <laughs> it's, it's the theory and the practice. Um, you know, um, 
as, as people what do with you a, mean the practice? Well, in other words, the theory, the theory of... Look, what I want to say is the possibility of a good encounter is sometimes enhanced by rules. What religions are quite good at doing is getting people in a room and saying, now this is going to happen. And that's very helpful. I mean, in medieval times, there was this wonderful feast called the Feast of Fools. And the point of the Feast of Fools was basically to say, now you can have an orgy. Now you can have sex with anyone you want. Uh, just for a day... Uh, but, you know, really let go. Uh, and that's terribly useful because most of us want to let go, but we don't know when, and it becomes messy, and we have affairs, and, you know, it all becomes very perturbed. In the, in the normal Catholic uh, uh, ritual, in the medieval Catholic view, you have one day, um, which is, you go crazy. And this is, you know, in Brazil, you still see echoes of this in, in carnival. Um, and then the rest of the time, order is imposed. I quite like this external support for internal needs so that you're not wholly responsible for your own impulses. The community takes them, structures them, and gets you in and out of the orgy. Terribly useful, because it's often so hard to know how to get in and how to get out. So it's very useful. Feast of fools. Yeah. With that, with that bit of wisdom, and I think um, we should bring the question to a stop. Um, now, um, please, please, please now, now welcome Anne Atkins, who's a novelist, a journalist, and uh, we all know her from that extremely uh, 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 religious slot, the um, thought for the day on the Today programme, as a broadcaster. Anne, thank you very much. You have nine minutes. Well, I have to say, when Alain started, I wondered which side he was batting for, because he seemed to be saying that religion treats us like children. It engages us in mindless repetition, expects us to be um, in need of psychotherapy. So I, I think he's done us rather a lot of favours. And what I want to say is that I agree with him. Um, the obvious way to take this debate is to look at all the bad things religion's done on one side and all the good things it's done on the other and weigh them in the balance and, you know, inquisition, witch hunts, whatever... Uh, on that side, on this side, hospitals, schools, orphanages, and look at the history of these things and weigh them up and at the end of it say, has religion, be, has religion been a force for good or bad, on balance? There are a number of difficulties with this approach. One thing I think it'd be rather uh, tedious and extremely inconclusive because you get involved in all sorts of uh, trivial debates like were the Crusades wars of religion or imperialism, um, you know, and to do that, you'd have to get inside the medieval mind and work out the difference and all sorts of things. Uh, th th there's another difficulty with it, which is that it tends to be extremely patronising. You know, relig religion is great for the masses, the people who would otherwise be rioting, but I'm much too intelligent for that sort of thing. It just, you know, keeps, stops people voting for, you know, socialist or whatever. The, the main difficulty with this approach, though, is that it completely misses the point. I want to take us on a slightly different journey which is that it seems to me the history of Judeo-Christianity, which is where I'm coming from, is the history of the utter failure of religion over thousands of years. In fact, more than thousands of years. It starts at the very beginning with the archetypal man and woman, the microcosm of the human race, in the ideal, you know, the vision of the ideal, with an open, intimate, unrestricted friendship with God. And what gets in the way? Religion. Don't do that, they're told. That's what religion's basically about, isn't it? As Alain said, ritual, how you behave, all that sort of thing. They get that wrong and it destroys their relationship with their creator. And then you go on to the next generation, Cain and Abel. What happens? Abel's religion's better than Cain's. So what does Cain do? He murders him. The worst crime there is. And it, it, it's because of religion. And that is the history throughout the Old Testament. Let's fast forward to what I think is the most probably the most shocking account in the whole of Scripture, and Scripture has some pretty shocking accounts, which is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Now, I, you will know the story of Abraham and Sarah, many, many years of Sarah's barrenness, and Abraham was promised this extraordinary blessing through his descendants, but he had no descendants or no legitimate descendants. And then in old age, Sarah gives birth to a son, and God says, I want you to take your son up onto a mountain and kill him in a religious sacrifice terrible thing to contemplate and Abraham doesn't do what Sarah would have done and say sod off you know Abraham actually does it now just to put this in context Abraham was living in a time when this was not that unusual 
Baal worship involved child sacrifice, as did quite a lot of pagan religions, because the whole point is you care so much about your religion, you will do anything. You will sacrifice your child, a baby. And Abraham takes his son up to the mountain. He deceives his servants. He deceives his son. He builds an altar. He puts a fire on it. He ties his child up on that fire, and he draws out the knife to kill him. And God says, stop. This is not what it's about. It is not about religion. And you get this over and over again. I mean, I believe, I find this a a troubling and fascinating account. And I believe it's that dramatic because it's that important that God is having to teach us that it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And all the way through, religion is destroying relationship. With Adam and Eve, with Cain, with his brother, with, with Abraham, with Isaac, that's what would have happened if God hadn't stopped it. Uh, you get the same with, well, we're, with Moses comes down from the mountain and they're involved in a religious ceremony. And, you know, Moses says, for goodness sake, I can't leave you for five minutes. You get stuck in religion with a golden calf, you know. And, it, and, and I could give you numerous examples. I'll just read out a couple um, from Samuel. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? No. To obey is better than sacrifice. The relationship, not the ritual. Uh, or from Isaiah, is this the fast I've chosen, sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you think is acceptable to God? No. Do away with injustice. Feed the poor. And then this wonderful passage at the end of this, then your light will break forth like dawn. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. He'll cry for help and he'll say, here am I, a relationship. And then most dramatic of all, the Lord says, all this, relation, all this religion over hundreds of years has failed. The old covenant has failed. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant. No laws, no commandments. The laws will be in your heart. Because I've been like a husband to you. And I'm going to make a new covenant. Covenant When everybody, nobody will teach religion, but everybody will know me, God says. That's what it's about. So that's the gist of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, what happens? God comes to earth as man, and a man who hates religion. Almost the first thing he does in John's gospel, he goes into the temple, he sees everybody obeying their religion, selling these animals for sacrifice. The only time we see Jesus violent, he throws over the tables, he destroys other people's property, he makes a whip, and he drives them out because he hates religion. The religious people of his day were the Pharisees. They were good people. They obeyed the religious laws. They did the right things. What's he call them? Whited sepulchres, vipers, snakes, hypocrites. Terrible thing to say to religious people. But Jesus hated religion. Um, (coughs) The story of the Good Samaritan is the story of (coughs) religious people, the priest, the Levite, walking away on the other side because their religion said you mustn't touch a dead body. And it's somebody outside the religion who shows love, who shows the relationship. Um, St. Paul, whom people think of as a dry old stick, hated religion so much that most of the book of Galatians is about St. Paul saying, you don't need circumcision. You can eat anything now. We've done away with religion. We don't need the law. We now have love. We now have the love of God. We now have a relationship with God. Or this um, in... Colossians, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink for regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, a Sabbath day. These are a shadow. The reality is Christ. And what's the last thing Christ does? He's dying on a cross and a terrorist, or two terrorists actually, uh, almost certainly murderers, dying with him. And one of them says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, this guy hasn't got a religious bone in his body And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Nothing to do with religion. Now, you and I, everyone in this room, faces the same future. All of us. Believe me, friends, on that day, all the religion in the world is going to be no use to you whatsoever. When you face your maker on the day of judgment, and he says, hello, why should I let you in? And you say, I went to church. He's not going to be impressed because that's not what it's about. What's going to matter on that day is who your friends are, or more specifically, who your friend is. Now, um, <clears throat> this is a, 
uh, a fun topic for a debate. And I hope you have a good evening. But it's not really very important, is it? Whether the world needs religion doesn't really matter one way or the other. And to be perfectly honest, I don't really care which way you vote. But there is something that matters very much. How you vote tonight won't make the slightest difference to the world. It really doesn't matter whether or not the world needs religion. But there is one question that could change your life. Not does the world need religion, but do I need God? So if that was uh, Anne agreeing with Alain, I'd like to hear her disagreeing with Alain. Um, <laughs> what, what, um, in other words, that was the argument for God against religion. Um, Grayson. Yes, uh, Anne, um, I was a bit mystified by that, really, because you, I was waiting for you to actually address the motion. And then you seem to be using, you seem to be distancing yourself from religion there, like it was like a hot potato. Yeah. You, know, you and Jesus and all the other people in, were distancing and um, I get the feeling, you know, you wouldn't even know about God and Jesus if it wasn't for religion. Because that's, what, that's the thing that's carried that message down through all the millennia. Okay, well then we get into a, a definitions, don't we, Rayson? I mean, Alain defined religion as ritual. Yeah, but there's all those that's... rituals, that repetition that he mentioned. Right. That's what made, that's what kept the story of God constant, you know, whatever. No. Well, okay, we don't agree on definition then. I see religion as, God's att- as man's attempt to reach God, which is absolutely futile. You're talking about them as if they're separate people. Who? God and man. Like there's some separate bloke up in the sky. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it sounds to me like you, you, you don't like any religion apart from what you believe in. I don't like any religion at all. What, none of it? No. But surely what, you, what you're talking about is, you know, is religion, believing in God. You're, you can't no. separate the rituals out from the... From... Yes, I believe you can. I don't think Jesus had any time for rituals at all. He had relationships. But what's instilled your belief are those rituals. Well, what, what has instilled my belief is the relationship he had with his friends and what they wrote about him and what has been passed but down to But reading that is... A ritual. No, I don't think it is at all. That's not. Was it like not. reading a novel? No. Look, if you read about the discovery of America, that's not religion. That's what somebody has told you. What he has experienced. That's what I've read. What people have. Not many people read the Bible for pleasure, do they? Oh. <laughs> I certainly don't read it for religious purposes. Oh. I can tell you that. Um, uh, yep. And I, I, I wanted to ask whether you you feel that all religious rituals are wrong, or whether they're by the by, or whether they're more capable of corruption than other things? And, and if so, I mean, w- would you want to throw out religious art, religious architecture, the study of scripture, um, the singing? The, I mean, it, do you want to do away with all that? How, what's your relationship no, okay, with all that I, stuff? I, do you... I see religion, well, I'm repeating myself now, religion as man's attempt to reach God, and that is futile. We cannot do it. We're not, you know, we are too puny. So... Okay, you talked about Bach. Bach wrote the most exquisite music out of his love of God and his belief in God. That, that isn't religion. But how come there's not many good religious artists nowadays? Oh. Most religious stuff nowadays, most religious art and music is a bit duff. But look, this is totally beside the point. Whether it's good or not, you know, is, is irrelevant. The question is, what... The question is, can I have a relationship with my maker? What, what do you think gets in the way? I mean, if you're saying religion's the sort of bad guy, the rigid, um, it's, you know, it's the letter, not the spirit, etc. What do you think it is within human beings that keeps corrupting what should be this pure, as you put it, relationship to God? Why, why, why does it keep going wrong? Well, because... <laughs> you're asking a very basic question here. Because of sin. Because I am created good but I do keep making bad choices. So, you know, everything uh, everything that's good, I am capable of spoiling, and I do. I mean, I I spoil relationships in all sorts of ways. But what's the particular nature of that spoilation, as it were? What what is it? Is it it being formal? It's bad choices I make. No, no, but in relation to to religion, what you're calling religion... Okay, in relation uh, to religion... Is it being too rigid or...? 
In relation to religion, basically, I think it's a mistaken independence. It's a uh, going back to the where I started with this um, wonderful explanation of w- the human condition, the the, the the picture story, if you like, of Adam and Eve. Um, what it what what goes wrong in my life is that I think I can, I think I can do it better. I think I can do it better than God. And that's where I go wrong, and that's where religion goes wrong, and that's where that is the heart of it going wrong, that I think I know better. Let's leave it there, and I'm sure there will be more opportunity later to do more of this. This Intelligence Squared podcast is supported by audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash debate. Please welcome Grayson Perry. Turner Prize-winning artist and who has a wonderful exhibition on at the moment at the British Museum, which I very much recommend. Ah, hello. Um, now, I stand before you here, a man in a dress. A man in a dress delivering a short talk. A man in a dress delivering a short talk on religious matters. Now, there's nothing unusual in that. It happens every day in churches. <laughs> holy buildings all around the world, every day. I start with that observation because religious practices often seem very bizarre compared to ordinary life, yet we accept them because they have this long history and, very importantly, quite obscure origins. You know, there's no internet then. We can't look up on the Google page of Jesus or the, um, the, uh, his Facebook page and check out what he was really doing. And many, if many familiar aspects of religion were introduced today, particularly if they were presented as the idea of an individual, they would be, appear very strange or arrogant, easy to mock. I mean, the comedian Lenny Bruce said, if Jesus had been executed today, Christians would be walking around with a little model electric chair hanging from their necks. And we accept, we, we, we accept the strange rituals of religion because they are ancient and because people who thought them out are obscured in the mist of time. This evening I play... Also, I want to be annoyingly understanding, because though I'm an atheist and a supporter of the motion, I'm very open to be persuaded. If I believe in anything, it is that you should hold your beliefs lightly. Being obsessed with winning the argument and being right is one of the unfortunate traits often shared by fundamentalists and believers. I'm open to be persuaded. I aspire to be flexible. I fail, usually. My my psychotherapist's wife tells me that Being flexible is one of the main constituents of sanity. So I leave it up to Anne and Anthony to to try and persuade me. At a lecture I was giving recently, I I was asked if I believed in God, and I said no. And a large section of the audience burst into applause and cheered. And I was a bit shocked. It was as if I had sort of like, you know, given diplomatic support to the home football team or something. And for a moment, my distaste for the mob almost trumped my Mm scepticism. (laughs) Atheists often cite science to attack religion But pitting science versus religion, as someone once said Is like a tiger fighting a shark They will both win on their home territory Religion did not happen just to wind up those sad Excessively logical, often male, belligerent academics I mean, I was surprised tonight that The organisation, we haven't got one of those people sitting opposite us but I think what happened was Christopher Hitchens, when he got up to Kevin, he sort of managed to send a message back to the others saying, the game's up, lads. <laughs> but a religion, on a more serious note, religion, I think, evolved out of a very human need. As an artist, I can understand the very creative and brilliant idea that God is, spontaneously and originally, just, just to satisfy, well, not just to satisfy, it came to satisfy the kind of pre-verbal needs of early humans. And un- the unconscious is extremely resourceful. Just as children today instinctively play out their fears and hopes through the metaphors of their games, so God was a great comfort in the frightening, mysterious world to adults. Our brains do not cope easily with the unknown. We have what Steven Pinker calls the baloney generator. Our unconscious is bursting to supply us with a believable answer to things we don't really understand or can know about. So it comes up with a, with a kind of idea, rationalise it, and God is, a, is an excellent example of that. The idea of God was gradually post-rationalised in service of very human reasons. I mean, there's whole libraries for theology to support the, the things that people want to do in the name of God over the millennia. 
And the danger of God as a voice unacknowledged as a human construct is that it is used to put forward the agenda of those in power who say they have a direct line to him. It's this bit like those words like normal and natural. They're cloaks in which to, hold our own, to hide our prejudices and our biases. It's like if you're an angry person, you tend to have an angry God. And if your God doesn't like homosexuals, then, you know, just because you don't like homosexuals. Now, I don't think I believe in God... I don't believe in God principally, I think, because I come from a non-religious family. I have no nice emotional experiences or family rituals of attendance and faith to implant and sustain my belief. I did go to a Church of England school, and it's given me knowledge of the most famous Bible stories, of which I'm very grateful because it's meant that I, I can enjoy religious art that much more. If I'm to recount my peak aesthetic experiences in the last decade, most of them would be in front of religious art whether it's in a stave church in Norway, a Bruegel in Vienna, a procession in Lourdes, Schartz Cathedral, the Isenheim Altarpiece, the wondrous Rococo Wieskirche in Bavaria. These are places that brought me to tears, aesthetically. And I don't think God was involved. I would say that many things that shape my life as an artist come from religion. The very way that we look at art comes from God. We go to a special building, we make pilgrimage to that special building, we stare at the special thing. Of course, I'm often in there having a glass of wine with my fellow congregants, and there's usually a little bit, there's usually a bit of smoked salmon there on top of the bit of bread. <laughs> but I see religion as a beautiful multimedia poem. I mean, the, Philip Larkin said in, in his poem, Obade, he called religion that vast, moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die. Today, especially here in sceptical Britain, many of us don't believe in the magic man with beard or flying messengers. But we do have a lot of strange beliefs. I mean, you've only got to watch an episode of Deal or No Deal. (laughs) I feel we have a need for meaning and ritual. Ceremony, participation, a set of habits, not purely about satisfying our selfish, individualistic, destructive, addictive instincts, but perhaps a structure to nurture more benign behaviour. I mean, one of my favourite quotes comes from one of Anthony's fellow Benedictine monks, Father Christopher Jameson, he said that people often come up to him and they say, oh, I'm not religious, but I've got a very strong spiritual side. And he would reply, I'm not spiritual, but I've got a very strong religious side. (laughs) And spirituality is a word often used, especially in this area of London. Um, I've got to say, um, it sets my teeth on edge. And it seems to trip off the tongue of those who subscribe to a very wishy-washy belief system. In that they're flooded in to fill the God-shaped hole in our society. And what I admire about a lot of religions is the clarity of its message and its narratives. There's no vague spirits often. You've got a definite bloke, there's a picture of him up there, and there's a definite time you've got to look at him. And like Alan was saying, all these calendars and things, it's the, it's the, it's the surety of it. It's not wishy-washy. That's what I admire about it. I mean, I've been on a couple of pilgrimages on my bike to famous religious sites. I've cycled across Europe to them. And, of course, that hard journey makes, when you get there, that is a very, it makes it much more impressive when you get to Santiago or Lourdes if you've, if you've struggled to get there in the heat. But, of course, that's why, I, you know, that's, it's not a religious experience when I get there. It's because I struggled to get there, and I'm really glad to get there. And I could easily side with many religious people about... The the moral and ethical failings that we see in society, politics, business, and the media. Yet I cannot share their superstitions. But what I'm envious about as an artist, I'm often envious about religious artists, is that they have at the heart this very definite, good, central idea. It's a good idea, God, Jesus, Buddha, or whatever it is. Because you can hang all the other lovely stuff on it. And of course, for an atheist now, like Alan, to suggest an alternative, it's very easy to mock. Because he's up against... Ideas that were thought up in the mists of time. And so we can pretend that they've come from God. Because we don't know that Alain de Botton, 2,000 years ago, said, it would be a good idea if we broke bread and wine now, wouldn't it? So religious rituals and art you know, were not handed down for heaven. They were conjured up by humans, but to meet a real need that we still have today. And I think atheists could form their own religion, one that has lovely buildings, emotional support, beautiful art, ethical and moral guidance. But it does, not happen, it does not have to happen overnight. You know, it's something that I think that could happen organically. It's a work in progress. Thank you. Anne and Anthony, your chance now to r- riposte. 
Uh, yes, I'd like to know, please, where you get smoked salmon with communion. No, I was talking about the art gallery and the art, the private oh. views in the art world. You know, they're the nearest we have to a communion, I suppose. We're all oh, standing around with our glasses. I, I thought you ju- said you'd, I thought you meant you'd visited the church where you get wine and then <laughs> little bits, little canopies on your. No, no, the art world's full of bad canopies. <laughs> but we do. We drink more than a glass, though. That's the problem, or even a sip. Uh, Grayson, you said you read, open to being convinced. Yeah, yeah, I think I, 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 yeah. I, I give lip service to that idea anyway. So what I, want to, <laughs> what I want to ask you is what would convince you? Huh? What would convince you? Well, that's why I said that I don't think I'm a believer because I didn't grow up with religion. And I think that the principal component of belief is emotion. That's why people are so defensive around it, is because there's no hard evidence. You can't say, oh, there's God in the light. If I said, what, people ask me what I believe in, I say gravity, because I can go like that, and it's all over. You know what I mean? So, um, so the principal component of belief is, is emotion, and that emotion accretes through a person's lifetime and experience, and it comes from, often from their childhood. I think so, more than often than not. I mean, they, we do hear about born-agains, but they have a very odd idea of religion, don't they? So... So then you're not really open to being convinced, are you? Because your emotions have been formed already. You're exactly. Not, you're that's, not what I, that's why I say it in a way. I'm, I, I, think, you know, I think you're dead right. I think that because I didn't grow up in a religious household and I don't have that, that experience and it wasn't nurtured in me, I don't think I would ever be convinced because unless God pops down in front of me and says, Grey, you know, and if he did, And if he did, what would you do then? I'd think, I'd probably first thought would be, God, you know, I've been on the source again. Because I think a lot of things that people... I mean, I've, I've taken drugs. I've had hallucinations. Yeah. You know, and I, and even, and I think that, you know... So I, 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 I don't think... It's, it'll take a, I would take a lot of convincing. I'd, you know... <laughs> it's just that... He'd have to be pretty spectacular. Right. I mean, he has done some pretty spectacular things. It's just that Jesus himself said, you know... If people don't want to believe, coming back from the dead is not going to convince them. Obviously. Well, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I haven't got it. When I see it in front of me, anyway, I don't want to get into an argument about whether I believe or not. Because I thought the motion was that uh, we don't need the belief in God for religion to be a good thing. Right. Now, I was just intrigued by your saying you were willing to be convinced. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, I, it doesn't I think really that... sound as if you are. No, like I said, I give that idea lip service because I think it's a very healthy thing to be flexible. And occasionally, occasionally my wife will challenge me about various things and I I have to sullenly agree with her. And I've I've moved on in the world. But she's not God. Sorry. What you're really saying is good to look flexible. No, no, I think I am quite flexible. There There are a lot of things you've said, Grace, which I find I want to comment on. But just out of interest, you seem to have disagreed with Alain about art. He says religious art is wonderful. You say it's crap. No, I said modern that. religious art is crap. Yeah, but it isn't. What makes you say that? Because all if of us... If it's perfect... Whenever I, I, can I, can there's I, a desultory I, corner in every cathedral where the local women's guild have done their embroideries of the Stations of the Cross. <laughs> or some spiritual bloke has laid a few pieces of kind of wood or concrete... But in that's the kind not of, art. That's not art. If I may say so, your own interesting contribution to beauty is something that people might not find attractive either. But the point about art, according to Alain, is to draw people into religion. Is so it? whether it's hideous or not, it seems that art that's almost used. irrelevant. Art when it's used. A con- a question yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, but they've disagreed with each other. Art, if art is specifically religious, you know, that, that propaganda thing might be its function. It doesn't make it good art, though. You I know, think it's very offensive, and Alain doesn't want to be, perhaps you do, but I think Women's Institute art is probably the height of the most glorious art we have in England at the moment. So I'm deeply offended by that. On that, Grayson. <laughs> on, on, on that, on that, um, on that great I think they're wonderful. My mother was a member. I think your time is up. <laughs> right. such, who's a Benedictine monk and was the master at Downside. Can I just say, Chairman and uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's lovely to be here. I'm slightly in awe of Anne. I totally agree with much of what she said, but she said 
whited sepulchres. Well, I actually, I hate to say it, live off collections that come into church, so please continue to go to church because I need the money. It's as simple as that. And I do care how you vote because I've got odds with friends of mine on how you're going to vote, so it is very, very important. And you talk about, Alain, not, you know, the ritual, the repetition of religion. Well, the most repetitive thing of all seems to be, so I'm told, the tax collector. And that, I assure you, is not religious. So let's get away from assuming that all these things you talk about are religious. They're also secular. And may I also say, Grayson, how deeply offended I am that you talk about religious people in dresses. They're happening all over the place. Well, some of you will have heard the story that I had when I took my habit to be cleaned by Sketchleys. And I had a half-hour discussion with them as to whether it should be cleaned as a military uniform or a ball gown, because there was no (laughs) other definition. And I went for a ball gown, which is not a dress. So let's get some of our facts right. Can I also say that the whole world of pilgrimage, which you seem to enjoy because of the hell of it, Alan, because I don't know what it does to him, can I just say that I once travelled first class, Cathay Pacific, to Hong Kong from London, and I would choose that any time in preference to pilgrimage, and it taught me a great deal. And a man on the news item came up, a chap, an evangelical, I won't go into naming and shaming, who had been caught, sadly, uh, committing adultery. And he said that he was deeply sorry about this, and he wanted to build a cathedral of repentance. He needed $10 million. And I was sitting in first class, and a good old Australian secular type turned around and said, and what have you been doing, Padre, to come first class? So let's enjoy... What is there? If you're not a believer, don't try and take things. Why don't you trust yourselves? Why don't you trust being secular, being an atheist? Why do you want to pinch things? I don't want to pinch things off you. I have no doubt, even though in some review of your book, my God, Alan, you're all over the damn place. I had to pay three pounds for a Financial Times to read about you. And I also, I see you're in the Evening Standard. I'm like, is this one big PR for the secular world? But anyway, never mind. But God is relationship. I have no doubt about that. And the history of religion without God is not a good one. We don't need religion as much as we need God. And that's how I see this debate. Again, I got this from a review. Machiavelli thought that religion was useful. It's a way of terrorizing people. Gibbons said he despised religious people, but it was socially useful. Diderot said it was essential for social unity, etc., etc. How incredibly patronizing that you want to take on board the outward signs of what should be an inner real response. Because it seems to me that without God, religion is a controlling and can be a state-controlling craft. And I don't want that, and I don't think you do. So God is far more important than the religion. The religion follows from it. Ritual comes from, as it were, knowing God and therefore practicing. Let me tell you a story which I think sums up your position. Supposedly, some friends of mine, a friend of mine said his parents... We're going from Bath to the Seychelles on holiday. They were in their late 70s. Lovely people, and he was a real gentleman, and she was a real gentle lady. And going for 10 days, she naturally had seven trunks of clothing. And he, being a gentleman, carried them. And he put them in the taxi. They got to Bath Station. They went up Bath Station. They got onto the train. They got off at Reading. They got onto a bus, and they went. And as they came towards where the check-in desk is some time ago, he was beginning to murmur. And this was very unusual because he was such a gentleman. And finally, he said to her, darling, he said, why on earth didn't you bring the piano as well? And she looked at him and he said, Humphrey, why on earth should I bring the piano? And she said, because the tickets and passport are still on it. So what you have done is you have left the ticket and the passports on the piano and gone for the journey getting to Heathrow, and it's not good enough. 
The other thing is, you're a lovely man, Alain, I'm sure of that, and you write the following things, so I'm told. You say religious beliefs are nonsense, but remain indispensable to civilized existence. They are not nonsense. This is an arrogance of the intellectual liberal classes that people cannot argue intellectually. We can. And a woman called Karen Armstrong, who wrote the day after you wrote in The Guardian last week, is a powerful intellectual woman talking about the existence or the case for God. Let's not be so arrogant as we as religious believers in God have been accused of. Let's not be arrogant. Have you not learned from your religion how arrogance can destroy us? And you say this. How to get... What it, religious teaches us to be polite, and I'm sure you are. Honor one another, faithful, sober, instructs in charms, promotes morality, engenders spirit of community, a consoling, subtle, and just charming rituals. Do you know what that reminds me of? I was young in the 60s, and there was a place called Lucy Clayton, where they tried to teach girls to get into a lotus elan without showing their knickers. And if I may say so, that's exactly what yours is. You're trying to charm. I'm not interested in charm. Well, I am. But I mean, I want truth as well. And it is a terrifying thing. If you have a faith in a God, it's not all hunky-dory. My God, literally, he won't let me do half the things I want to do because he says it's wrong to shout abuse at people like you. So I try not to, although I had to go at the bus driver today, but that's another matter. And Peter and Paul and a whole lot of other people are standing up for a God. All right, they're religious as well. But they're standing up for a God who can be terrifying. Romero, what's going on in Nigeria? People are being killed for their God, I believe, and they're prepared to do it. And let's get away from this idea that God is just logos. What about mythos? This whole idea, yes, of ritual. Not ritual for the sake of religion and conformity and doing it again and again, but to excite what Sarah Sands says in the evening standard today, the mystery. Why are atheists... And good atheists, I'm sorry, that sounds patronized, not meant to be, trying to forget mystery. It is about being human. Being human, responding to our position, is about God, we believe, calling us and us responding. And yes, that response is religion, possibly. But at the same time, there's no need for that response unless you have a faith in God. What are you doing? You're pick and mixing the things that suit. What happens if a set of people don't agree with the pick and mix that the other have? It reminds me so much of that marvelous man, uh, Milligan, Spike Milligan, who wanted everything perfect. And what happens? He comes back from a holiday in Florida, and he's asked by the paparazzi, how did it go? He said, it was absolutely marvelous. No problem at all, he said. Sand for the children. Sea for the mother, for the wife, and sharks for the mother-in-law. And that's the sort of thing I think you're trying to do. You haven't really allowed us as people who believe in God to be poetic, to allow that we don't know how to describe the indescribable, how to get hold of it somehow, admittedly through art, through poetry. I've been reading a lot of R.S. Thomas at the moment, and he has the most wonderful insights for me. They resonate. And he goes through various poets in an interview with Graham Turner, in which he talks about the way the poets try to describe what is to them, I suppose, God. But they don't want to use that word. And dear old Einstein, as you know, is a man who believed very much in the whole world of mystery, the mystical, not in your religious way. And he said, I am not religious in that sense unless religion is about the mystic. And it is about the mystic. It's about understanding how we came into being, 
what our destiny is. And there goes the church bell. That's an absolute typical religious thing. And lastly, but not least, can I just end up like this? I think what you have said is like an advertisement. It's terrifying. What happens is Trevor Bailey, on the last cricket tour of Canada, where they went by boat, spent the whole time downstairs below, sorry, drinking. When they came into the Hudson, they finally said to him, Trevor, you've got to come up and see what's happening, dawn. And he came up on deck, and he exclaimed in a loud voice, I can't, I simply can't. And they looked at him and, looked at him and said, what, can't what? He said, do that. And they turned round, and there was a large advertisement, drink Canada dry. And he couldn't. And I fear what you have done is you're advertising, but you're not getting the substance. There is no religion without God. Thank you very much. Anthony, Anthony, hold it. Stay there. You have three minutes to grill Anthony. Um, yeah. Um, Anthony, a lot of your talk seemed to be seems to sort of have this idea that we were trying to convert you somehow or that our idea was aimed at you but it's not i mean alan's book and this you know and the and the kind of uh, uh, the motion is aimed for people who don't believe in god Absolutely. i mean we're quite happy for you to carry on yeah. believing in god yeah. and having your but life i'm at saying time. but but what this idea is because the secular society without the, the godless if you like are adrift in a Well, why way. don't they get secular rituals? What is the well, point of calling... Well, that's what we're trying to do! Yeah, <laughs> but why does he call it religious? I, I'm not calling it religious. Well, the, the debate is about... No, it's about being inspired by... No, it. it's not. Yeah. If I can read it to you, the world needs religion. It, you should be saying it needs secular rituals. Fine. Yeah. But that's not what this is saying. Sorry, that's what we were told to debate, but and Grayson was saying... Yeah, but I'm not. And stop pointing, it's very rude. We we had separated religion. We had separated religion away from from God. And Anne seemed to get it because she was quite happy with that separation from what she said. Well, I'm not. But you don't seem to be so happy with it. I'm not at all. And and, and then you knock Alan as a sort of PR operator. If you look, he he said it about Titian. Most religious art is PR. You know, it is PR. And, and all, what is a sermon but a kind of a, a long bit of PR? But Grayson, to the secular, all things are secular. I was actually spent an hour and a half in the National Gallery this afternoon looking at some of these because I read Alain's article on art in, in The Guardian. And, you know, you could look at it, and he mentioned somewhere, I think, the Madonna and Child, how clever religion is or whatever, to make... You know, the Madonna, the sort of typical gracious, I can't remember the relationship between the two. To me, that's irrelevant. It could be anybody. But to me, if you bring God into it, you get a totally different dimension to that art. That art can be taken the way people see it. Religious art should be about, right, about God. Yeah. Um, Look, yeah. Um, my, my question, Anthony, is that I sense, not consciously, in your um, approach, a real sort of arrogance. What you're saying is people should believe. If they don't believe, they're just on their own. Now, 70% of people in the United Kingdom, for reasons that Grayson was saying, etc., can't believe. I can't believe. It's just never struck me as something to believe. And you're saying, let's not make it like a finishing school, which really means, unpicking those words, let's not try to make life merely nice. Let's not stop making it nice. In other words, let's not try and create a society where people aim to be good and wise and kind and generous. That's nonsense. There's a far greater heroic struggle to be had, and I invite you on that mission, dear brothers. Now, what I'd like to say to you is, 70% of us are not engaged on that mission. 70% of us are quite happy, would, would be quite satisfied with a society in which people were good in which there was uh, room for tolerance. You dismiss that as a mere titbit. I think that's rather good. What do you make of my accusation? I think, I, think it's, I think it's total nonsense. Of course I want a happy society. Don't be ridiculous. But to me, the whole idea of happiness is not by falsifying things, but becoming, allowing people to face the truth as they see it, or as it is, and not dress it up. Surely you have enough confidence in people, whether they believe in God or not, 
to face that and to achieve happiness through where they are, not by some palliative. And, you know, Alex, whatever his name, said recently, let's put Prozac instead of God. Dressing I up makes me very happy. I wonder if you're doing the same sort of thing. Very, very good. Thank you very much. Let me remind you of the votes as you came in. 51 don't knows. That's gone down to 10. And then we had 119 for and 84 against. We're now at 127 against. In other words, you've done a pretty good job, but not quite good enough, with 139 agreeing with the motion. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.